Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. As usual, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Today, we'll have Dr. Tony Oliva, general surgeon. No, he doesn't just operate on military generals, nor is he a general. <laughs> But what is a general surgeon? What does he do? Why does the world need more Catholic general surgeons? Well, you'll have to wait until the second segment of the show to find out. He's going to answer those questions. You know, and as we're going through this kind of a bit of a series on the different medical specialties, trying to enlighten our, our listeners and engage folks that are interested in a career in medicine, one of the things that we wanted to talk about was just a little bit of background about surgery in general, general surgery included. Yeah, it's um, interesting that general surgery really mainly refers to surgery in the belly. It does. You know, and I, I always think of, I'm a family practice doctor, and so I always think of general surgery as the family practice surgeon, you know, <laughs> depending on the part of the country you're in, depending on your hospital, who else works there, if you're a community hospital or if you're in a big center in, in the middle of a big city, you're going to be doing very different work. But one of the things I, I love and kind of a little teaser for the family medicine episode is that you can choose what you want your work to be, even in the same specialty by, by taking different types of jobs. And, and it's very interesting with general surgery. So much of it's in the abdomen, but they really get trained in a lot of different things. So Andrew, you've got some information here on what are the most common surgical procedures in the country? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of, of a lot of our listeners thinking, when would I need a surgeon? And uh, it's, it's kind of interesting. I tried to figure out what percentage of people in their lives ever have surgery. And I, I looked for a long time. I could not find that number. But I think it's pretty high. I think it's pretty high. Well over half is what I would say. But it, it's probably different in different countries. I know in America, um, the, the amount of surgeries per lifetime is, is the best I could come up with. Uh -huh. Americans, at least based on this study, uh, underwent an average of 9.2 surgeries throughout their life. Wow. It, it got kind of more common the older you got, and it peaked at about age 75 years old with people getting 0.16 operations per year, so uh, surgery every 10 years. You know what's kind of funny is I have a number of patients in their 70s or 80s who I operate on who tell me, Doc, you're the first person to ever give me stitches. Isn't that something? It is. It is amazing to me. See, and, and so it's, it's kind of hard to wrap, wrap our mind around those numbers. The, the data has at least not been uh, correlated in that way, but things that are well known are the most common types of surgeries. And so these are the things that, as a listener, you might be most eligible for statistically. Um, and number one in America, at least, believe it or not, are cataracts, which is an eye surgery to replace the lens of the eye if it gets cloudy or some people are born with congenital cataracts, but about 3 million people per year have cataract surgery. And you know something I don't see on your list of top 10, in fact, I was just trying to Google it, is how many cases of skin cancer surgery there are a year. Of course, they, you always leave the skin out in these, but I'm thinking we're going to be up there. There's 5 million skin cancers a year. That's so, what I was wondering too. I said, man, I feel like they, this list overlook dermatology. And so I think that's part of the problem. Some of the studies that I was reading is the definition of surgery uh, means different things to different people. On, on my list, the top f number fifth common, most common surgery in the U.S. annually is circumcision, where it's, I mean, strictly speaking, yeah, it's surgery. It's kind of a, a you know, I, I think Tony might be upset if we said a minor surgery, um, but it's, it's a lot procedure. more minor than <laughs> it's a procedure, right? Not a surgery. And so I think that the devil's in the details there, but kind of from the top to the bottom, absent skin cancer, which probably is up near the top, cataracts are one. Number two is C-section, 1.3 million of those in America per year. Uh, the next most common is joint replacement with the knees being the most common joint and hips number two. Circumcision is number four, I'm sorry. Uh, number five is orthopedic trauma. Somebody gets in an accident or falls and breaks a hip or fractures something and they need to be put back together by our friends in orthopedics. Um, next most common would be angioplasty. Um, 
and that's closely related to stenting procedures of the coronary arteries of the heart. Those both occur in about half a million. And in the top 10, the only one that is going to be in Tony Oliva's realm is number nine, the gallbladder removal. I I was shocked by this list. I was too, honestly, because I I was looking into it. And if I had to make a list, I probably would say at the top, skin cancer, number two, gallbladders, you know, and I think in training, that's probably what you see so much because it is elective. Well, hernias, I would have expected hernias on the list. Hernias are a common one too, you know, and I think, I think part of it is things like cataract surgeries, man, you just don't appreciate how many people need that. A lot. There there are, there are really a lot. So- I thought that was useful information. Andrew, you've got some incredible data here on how the COVID pandemic impacted surgery. Yeah, you know, we on this show, we like to kind of delve into COVID. And I want to make sure we ask Tony about how that's impacting his life. But there was a lot of, a lot of information brought out because we're trying to conserve this protective equipment so they cancel all quote-unquote elective surgeries for a period of time. And the best estimate is worldwide, there's about 28 million surgeries that were canceled. That is incredible. It's hard to believe that big of a number, but you think about the weeks and the months now that this is drug on. And even after they're opening up surgeries, I know several of the, the institutions that I'm familiar with, there's a lot of things that are being done to protect patients and staff such as, you know, everybody is only being allowed to use about half of their normal OR time, um, things that are, are done to prioritize different surgeries. And there's even a new kind of tool that they've developed and put into use to try and triage, you know, is, is Susie's gallbladder in a 28-year-old more important or less important than, you know, a colectomy in a 65-year-old from chronic diverticulitis. How do you even balance those? And so these are the things they're trying to figure out, but the best estimate is it's going to take, if everybody increased their capacity by 20%, every surgeon works Saturdays on top of the normal five-day week, that would take 11 months to make up that gap. And most estimates suggest it's going to take several years to catch up. That's... That's just incredible. Some of the unintended consequences of the COVID lockdown. Well, before we go to our wonderful guest, we have our question. And and this uh, medical trivia question of the day is in the category of medical history. You may have heard of the barber surgeon, one of the most common European medical practitioners in the Middle Ages. And he was generally charged with caring for soldiers before and after battle. And during this time, surgery was seldom conducted by physicians there was a sharp demarcation but instead surgery was done by barbers because what they possessed razors and coordination so when you have those two things together i guess back then you became a surgeon and they cut hair and they amputated limbs why not so the question is the barber surgeons often had a pole in front of their place of work what two colors are classically found on a barber's pole and what do they represent We'll be back with more of Dr. Doctor and Dr. Tony Leva after the break here on Redeemer Radio. We are now here to welcome our special guest today, Dr. Tony Oliva from the great state of New York. He's a cradle Catholic who grew up in Syracuse, graduated from Holy Cross College, went to med school at Boston University. He got married right before his fourth year of medical school. He's got one, two, three, four, five children at last count. I think that's still correct. Uh, He did his residency at Mercy Hospital in Pittsburgh in general surgery. After practicing for a short number of years in North Carolina, he then moved to St. Joseph's Hospital in Syracuse, New York, where he currently is. He's been incredibly involved in the Catholic Medical Association. He's now on the national board of the Catholic Medical Association, and we welcome General Surgeon Tony Oliva to... Dr. Doctor, to kind of unravel the mysteries of the general surgeon. Thanks for being with us, Tony. Glad to be here, and congratulations to you guys on the Gabriel Award. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. Tony, out of all of the crazy things you could have done after four grueling years of medical school, you, for some reason, chose to be a general surgeon. What led to that decision? Going into medical school, I wanted to be a cardiologist, but then I had to read EKGs and I just didn't like electrophysiology. <laughs> but the thing, general surgery was my first rotation as a third year medical student. And 
I actually didn't realize there was so much medicine involved in taking care of surgical patients. So I, I really was attracted by the mix of doing procedures and also managing medical problems. I've not, I don't think I've heard those words out of a surgeon before, but I actually did experience it. My first rotation in my internship was general surgery. It was the most grueling rotation I ever had, and they knew a whole lot about medical problems. I remember the second-year residents having to run the SICU, the surgical intensive care unit. My gosh, they practically lived there. So, so my point about that, it seems like general surgery, especially during training, requires absolutely total commitment with hardly any time for anything else in life, including sleeping and eating. Is, is that true? Back when I trained, yes, it still is true because if you're really a dedicated surgical resident or surgeon, you will spend time reading when you're off. But I trained, I finished in 2002. That was just before all these work hour restrictions went in force. And I, I guesstimate we probably worked about 100 plus hours per week, uh, including call, overnight call. And we even, I, I also moonlighted. Um, I, I, I sort of had to because you only could defer your loans for four years. So chief year came along that fifth year residency and I had to start paying them back. So I had to moonlight. Man. So how, how do you think, I guess now the hours are different, right? Is there, what's the limit on the hours now? I believe it's 80 hours. So 80 hours. I mean, that's, if you put that over a five-year surgical residency, that's a lot of experience that the new surgeons are not getting. Do you think these hour rules that have changed, do you think that's affected the type of training that residents get? Yes, a big part of it is doing cases. And certain cases don't come, come on the schedule every day. Some of those rarer things you might not see, especially if you're at a smaller community program. So I think what's happening is a lot of surgical residents after they finish training are going on to do fellowship just so they can get that additional operative experience. And I've seen, uh, you know, physicians, surgeons in different specialties coming out now where they want somebody watching over their shoulder even when they are, you know, supposedly private practice doctors now. They just don't feel comfortable. Does that surprise you? No. Um, I remember when I was a resident, we once you were fourth, fifth year, if you demonstrated competency, the attending would let you do a you know straightforward, uncomplicated case. He would be nearby in the room, but not necessarily scrubbed. But it was important to get that experience because pretty soon the training wheels were coming off, and you know you had to put on the daddy pants, so to speak. You know, that was those first experiences of being able to do that. Do you, do you think that, uh, just another question about the training hours, do you think that it would be better to go back to the old way or the extra sleep helps the residents? Well, if they use it for sleep, it, it is beneficial. There definitely is something to being fatigued. However, I did find that in doing it in residency allowed me to do it in practice because once you get into practice, I can't tell my partners, oh, uh, I hit my 80 hours. I can't stay up tonight. Um, can, can one of you cover for me? So, I don't know if this, this is true for you guys, but I felt like life got harder after residency. Is that, was that just me? or? No, I would totally agree with you. My wife and I often reminisce about the days of being a resident. There was something comforting in it. I mean, you didn't make as much money. Uh, your lifestyle was much simpler, but at the same time, there was some security in it because you had senior residents, chief residents, attendings who were watching your back and you had more of a team like mentality ah. uh, with your fellow residents, you know, getting through it together. together. And I noticed that in the general surgeons where I did my internship. Yes, they did have a camaraderie, even though they would mercilessly pick on each other. Um, it was it was kind of funny. I mean, you often pick worse on the people you love the most. So if you had it to do over again, would you still do general surgery? I've thought about this often, and I would say yes. That hasn't changed how I like the mix of procedures and medicine. I also find that in 
general surgery, you get, do get to establish some long-term relationships with patients that you follow over the years. Um, it's the only thing differently now is I probably might do some additional training. More so because the knowledge base and what you have to know as a general surgeon, it's exploded so much that I just think it's beneficial to kind of have a focus or a niche that, um, you know, enables you to potentially have a better lifestyle than if you're just the a broad-based general surgeon. How did you ever have time to, how do you ever have time to get married? Well, that happened in medical school. <laughs> so she was stuck with you then. Well, I'm very blessed to have a wonderful wife. I think a big part of why it's worked so well all these years, I mean, I've been in practice since 2002, is the fact that while her father was an anesthesiologist, and she actually was a nurse before we got married on a medical surgical floor. Ah, excellent. So what is your typical day and week like now, Tony? Right now, my primary responsibility in my group is I'm an acute care surgeon, which means I'm covered at the emergency department. And the way we set it up in our group at our hospital is I will cover, I'll start taking calls from the air at 6 a.m. I don't necessarily have to be in the hospital at 6 a.m. Um, and I will take those calls until our office switches the phones over to the answering service to pick up the calls. And that's usually around 4.30. So during the day, I will take care of any consult in the emergency department, any inpatient consult. If my partners admit a patient overnight, they'll admit it to me. If the patient say needs their gallbladder taken out the next day and they'll put it on the OR schedule for me and I'll take care of that. The only elective surgery I do anymore is I do some spine exposures, uh, a lateral approach for our spine surgeons. So you don't have a, a regular schedule. Is that upsetting, discombobulating, or do you kind of like living on the edge? It can be a little discombobulating because the stress level of every time you're called is a little bit higher than seeing somebody in the office who's not acutely ill. You know, the toughest call to make is if someone comes in with an intestinal obstruction is whether or not they're going to need an operation and when. Because uh, depending on how you make that call, it could either turn be very good or it can turn out very badly for yourself and more importantly, the patient. Man. So I wonder, sometimes I get texts from my wife saying, um, when are you coming home? Uh, I guess when you, every single day you go to the hospital, you don't know how many consults you're going to get. You probably get those all the time, right? Throughout the day. And typically there's a lag. Not much happens in the morning. Uh, usually the consults will pick up in late morning, afternoon, and one thing that's been difficult now is because every patient comes through our ear has to be COVID tested. Oh, it's wow. been delaying getting patients into the operating room or admitted. But on the flip side, my partners, when they take call at night, they will, um, I'll, I'll, I'll hand off a case to them if it's going to go late and they're okay with that. Uh, three out of four weeks in the month, I'll be the guy. And then one of my partners will do it one other week. And during that week, I'll do the night call. So I kind of see it from both ends. Oh, my goodness. For me, I, I just, I knew I wasn't cut out for very many specialties because I just could not function on low amounts of sleep. How, how did you, how do you get through that wall? How do you do that? How do you still do that? You just push yourself and uh, being Catholic, I just offer it up. <laughs> do you have uh, favorite charities where you donate your suffering to? Well, the Catholic Medical Association has been first and foremost on my mind lately, especially during these difficult times and all the intentions of all the members of the CMA. Man, that's awesome. Very good. So, Tony, what are the most common reasons patients see uh, a general surgeon? Well, it's pretty simple. People have pain, typically abdominal pain. They have a lump or a bump. Uh, a mass, soft tissue mass, sometimes uh, same reasons they might see you, a skin lesion that's changed, um, or a bulge, like a hernia. And acutely, if someone has a soft tissue infection, some redness, pain, and a lot of times our primary care brethren are the ones who will refer these patients to us. So how often will a patient come directly to you and not see another physician before they're before you or one of your partners? 
You know, it depends on uh, their insurance. <laughs> Some insurances require a referral. But how would a patient even know to see you first before any other physician? Well, they probably go to WebMD or they Google something because everybody is now their own personal physician. <laughs> That's and true. Then, the Internet's probably changed a lot for general surgery. Yes, everybody already tells us what they want. <laughs> so how are you able to improve the lives of your patients? How do you make a difference? How do you know that you did something worthwhile at the end of the day? Well, when somebody comes in with acute pain, usually from a gallbladder is the most common thing we do as general surgeons. Going in, taking out an inflamed gallbladder and seeing them afterwards. Now they have some surgical pain, but typically it's through four small incisions and the pain they were having before is gone. And actually one of the most rewarding things is draining an abscess. <laughs> yes. I mean, a pa that's immediate gratification. Yes. <laughs> because the patient comes in and a lot of pain. And as soon as you, you know, open that up, you know, and relieve that pressure, they are immediately better. And they actually will thank you. Man, I, I guess you had mentioned laparoscopic surgery. Was that a big part of your training or did that come through after you were done training? A little of both. When I trained from 97 to 2002, I was at a community program, although we were a level one trauma center and had a burden center, our laparoscopy pretty much was limited to gallbladders. We started doing some anti-reflux surgery, a few hernias. I did not learn appendixes as a resident. I taught myself laparoscopic appendectomies as an attending and some laparoscopic colon surgery as well as laparoscopic hernia surgery. When I was in training, I mean, I'm, I'm new out, so everything was laparoscopic, but once in a while you got an open case and I got so excited. And I was thinking of, of folks that do general surgery and I wondered, do you guys get excited when you have a big open case or not as much? I'd say we still get excited. And yeah, because I was wondering, operating through little holes, to me, it doesn't seem like it would be very fulfilling. Is it? It depends. I mean, you, you do have the screen. I, I really do enjoy taking out gallbladders laparoscopically. But along those same lines, that's kind of why I drift away from vascular surgery. Because towards the end of my training, everything was being done through catheters and guide wires. And I thought if I had to do that all day, I would go insane. <laughs> there is something nice about having an open abdomen and being able to work with your hands yes, you know, directly with the tissue that, and there's always going to be a need for that. Whenever we have a, you know, unfortunately patients come in with horrific problems, perforated ulcer, perforated colon. I mean, there's no really not much role for laparoscopy in those situations because they have so much contamination in inside their abdominal cavity that as soon as I open them, open up the patient, I'll just look at everybody in the room and say, this is why you still need me. Like, <laughs> yeah. No one else is going to do this at this hour. Yeah. You know, I remember I did my internship in 1991. And so in July of 90, when I saw them, they were actually starting to do uh, lap coles, removing the gallbladder. And I was, I was thinking, that doesn't look very interesting. Because in the surgery I do, of course, is in the skin. So I'm always manipulating with my hands. And yeah, if I had to do it with machines, it just doesn't, it would lose something. Uh, I agree. The only thing that was worse is when I was a med student sitting in the op ophthalmology room and I was watching the <laughs> image up there on the screen. I thought, well, that's really cool. But then when I looked over at the two surgeons, they were both had their heads in a microscope and you could barely see their hands moving. Yeah, it's, uh, well, I guess we sort ourselves out. So speaking of that, what type of person, for any young people listening or parents of young people listening, what type of person fits best in general surgery? I would say somebody who likes a variety of things. Because we have days, the average general surgeon will have days where they're in the office, kind of low-key. They'll see patients, they'll get to interact with them, schedule a few surgeries. Other days, a general surgeon will have their, what we call the block day, where they're assigned time either at a surgery center or an operating room to do their elective cases. Those typically tend to be on the lower end of stress. But then you can still get a little excitement when you take call, especially if you do trauma. And it kind of can give you that type of balance. I mean, you, you'll never be bored uh, as a general surgeon. 
just when you think you're getting bored and you're in a rut, it's always just another gallbladder. All of a sudden, something interesting will come along and kind of remind you why you, you really love being a physician. Or you'll do a very difficult case very well. You know, it's sort of like an athlete almost. You know when you really were, were on the mark and uh, hitting on all cylinders. And then on the other side, there are days when you wish somebody could just take you out and bench you. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, Tony, what in life have you had to give up so that you could be the general surgeon that you are? Freedom and pride. <laughs> wow. Freedom. Wait, surgeons who have given up pride, tell me more. <laughs> well, uh, it is a very humbling profession. Just when you think you are, you have it all, you're, you're just, you can tackle anything, you get a complication. Sometimes it's your fault, sometimes it's just the circumstances, but pretty soon you learn that it's very humbling and not to be too overconfident. You also have to know when to ask for help, particularly when you're first starting out. There's absolutely no shame and it's not a sin to ask for help. If anything, the sin and shame would be not asking for help because then you could potentially put a patient at risk uh, by not getting somebody with more experience or just another set of experienced hands to help you. So those are the two things that immediately came to mind. Well, freedom. freedom, yeah, freedom is something that, um, was it Aquinas said, that a lover desires to be bound with the beloved. And here your beloved can be your profession. So you give up freedom to be bound, don't you? You do, but the freedom you give up is your time. Uh, when you're not in the hospital and you're on call, you're tied to your phone. It used to be your pager, but now it's your phone. Um, I have missed many holidays, birthdays, anniversaries, school uh, concerts, sporting events at school, lots of things you give up in order to do this. But in the end, it's worth it. Man. And if you just look what Jesus gave up to, yes, <laughs> for us, it's kind <laughs> of tough to com Yeah, <laughs> it's it's kind it's kind of tough to complain. I I really like how you bring in humility because that's the exact right perspective to have. And I mean, that's applicable, I think, to all all specialties. I mean, it's the nature of the practice of medicine where we're, we're working with imperfect information, imperfect tools. Uh, it's out of our control. So here's, here's my question. There's a, a stereotype of general surgeons that's unfair, but that they, they might not be the easiest people to get along with, or they could be prideful at times. Is your response the Catholic general surgeon's response, or is that an unfair stereotype? Well, stereotypes do exist for a reason. There is some truth behind all <laughs> stereotypes. That's why they get people are stereotyped. Now, is it a just stereotype or an unjust one? If you don't have all the information, it's somewhat unjust. I always tell people uh, what I would like you to know about a general surgeon, particularly my colleagues in the ER and the referring doctors, is we are often grumpy, crabby, cranky, abrupt, <laughs> rude, and temperamental, which I think we're... That's why we're cholerics, right, Tom? Choleric, yeah. Choleric. Other than that, you're all teddy bears. <laughs> but the important thing I tell them is don't take it personally. We have a very stressful job. We do our best to bring healing to our patients, and we do feel responsible when things don't go well, uh, whether that's right or wrong. And also fatigue. Fatigue still sets in. So, Tony, that is a great first half of the interview. We're going to take a short break here and come back with more about how being a Catholic influences how you're a general surgeon here on Dr. Doctor from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not, and their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back with Dr. Doctor talking to Dr. Tony today about general surgery. And Tony, one of the things I like to ask people is, if you were not a general surgeon, what would you be doing? Ooh. Well, being Italian, of Italian lineage, <laughs> I'd probably be a carpenter or in construction. Nice. 
Yeah, they often say, how do you clear out the Italian wedding? You just say the concrete's here. <laughs> <laughs> and how do you teach an Italian to swim? Toss him in the water and ask him to start talking because the hands are moving when they're talking or the hands are moving when you're operating. So, Tony, how do your Catholic beliefs affect how you practice general surgery? Well, that, that, that has been a part of my formation even in choosing my residency. I was a, went to a Catholic grammar school, Christian Brothers High School, Jesuit College, then a secular medical school, and I really missed something. So I really wanted to go to a Catholic residency. Oh. The reason I chose Mercy Hospital is I was looking at the brochure in the library one day at Boston University as a med student, and I'm flipping through their surgery brochure, and I was always a Steelers fan, so that's what drew me to Pittsburgh. <laughs> and sure enough, I, I saw the program director at the time his name's Dr. Jack McKeating. And I noticed on his lapel pin, he had the precious feet. The, you know, the little, oh, yes. I, I looked at that and I thought, I want to be trained by him. Him, yes. Or somebody like him who shares my values. And I was very fortunate that when I went there to interview, he interviewed me and you know, the rest is history. Oh, thanks be to God. Yes, I love looking for those things. It's and it was something we talk about in the CMA often these days is mentorship and how the students actually want mentors like us. They want to find the people like you had. That, that's a great example. So in general surgery, what are the biggest ethical challenges that you face as a Catholic, if any, and how do you handle them? My ethical challenges definitely come on the back nine, the end of life, as opposed to beginning of life. I mean, it's rare I encounter a pregnant patient. Usually it's for appendicitis or cholecystitis. And, you know, usually the baby's not the issue. We just take care of the baby by taking care of mom. But my biggest dilemmas come at the end of life, especially when you have somebody who's clearly at the end of life, because the reason why people live so long is we're very good at what we do as a whole. <laughs> as we a keep whole. people alive long enough that they now have lived long enough to get another problem that we have to try and solve. So if someone's at the end of life, I, the question I'm always faced with is, should I operate on this patient? Is it right? I mean, is it ethical? Could I potentially be doing them harm by operating? Even though I might prevent them from dying from X, I might shorten their life because of the stress of the operation I just subjected them to. Uh, so that's definitely one area. And we see that a lot with nursing home patients. Surprisingly a lot with big sacral decubitus ulcers. Mm. Where, you know, these poor Ulcers patients, on your bottom or tailbone for our listeners. Yes. And, um, you know, you just think that ultimately they're never going to heal the wound, but are you going to subject them to really a, I don't know, sometimes when I'm doing that procedure, I just can't believe that I'm doing something like that to another human being. But things like that, and feeding tubes is probably the other big thing, peg tubes. I help our gastroenterologists put in all the feeding tubes. Mm. You know, I, I don't have as much of an issue putting them in as maybe some other people, because uh, by and large, it's an uncomplicated, straightforward procedure. Sure. So I usually don't have a problem putting those in, but those are the issues that come up. It's usually the end-of-life care. So what would you say to our listeners about why the world needs more faithful Catholic general surgeons? Well, first of all, I was thinking about this, and as Catholics, we are called to be excellent no matter what we do. So setting aside the religion aspect, we're just called to be excellent physicians and to practice our craft uh, with integrity, making sure we're up on everything. We have the knowledge, the skill, we take care of ourselves so we can be 100% available to our patients mentally and physically. Uh, we also need Catholic general surgeons to make sure that your wishes are honored. Uh, a lot of people um, at the end of life, you really want to have a Catholic general surgeon there, especially the way things are going. We, sometimes I think we're on that slippery slope towards, well, we are in some places towards euthanasia. And sometimes having that Catholic general surgeon will stand up for you. Also, we can sometimes help people palliatively by doing surgery. Um, for example? Suffering. Well, if somebody has a obstruction, that can be really a terrible way to die. 
from a bowel obstruction. So sometimes we can do different procedures to alleviate their pain or their suffering um, or an infection. And sometimes we can help them without even doing surgery, having another procedure done. But probably the most important reason why you want to have a general surgeon is they will make sure you get anointed when you are at the end. <laughs> Amen. That's awesome. I can't, I can't tell you how many times. You remember the old barons, the 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 um the pilots in World War One, they would stamp the side of their plane. Yes. And they shot down another plane. <laughs> well, what I try to do is I like to stamp mine with patients I get anointed just before they die. Oh my goodness. Wow. That's what do you happened. stamp with it? What, what, what would you well, put? Well, just in my mind. I'm hoping okay. that it shorten my time. Or do you have like a, a helmet with all the little stickers, the football? Yeah. Little, little, little angel wings. <laughs> That's awesome. What do you think you have? One. I don't know, but I do remember a few that stuck out. And I also would tell our priests, our clergy who are listening, if you are called to go to a hospital to anoint someone, get in there and do it because you never know when they may pass. You don't want to miss that opportunity. And that happened once on a Sunday. I was going into the unit to see a man. I saw the parish priest coming out. He just anointed him. And this patient decided he was not going to be put on a ventilator. And he was at the end of his life. He actually had a, a really bad colitis. And we decided we weren't going to do surgery. And I said, oh, did you just was that father who just left? And he said, yes. I said, did he anoint you? Yes. I'm like, oh, you're all set then. <laughs> and I left. I'm doing my note, and the nurse is like, what's going on there? I said, oh, no, they were just going to yeah, – I think he agreed to go on the ventilator, but he wasn't going to have surgery. I said, I think they're just putting him on the vent. I said, no, something else happened. So I went in the room, and he had passed away. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. He was the DNR, and his pacemaker stopped capturing, and he, he died. Um, but he got what, annoyed what to go? shortly before he died. So when I told my wife this, she said, well, that's your fault. You told him he could go. <laughs> <laughs> But really, what better way? I mean, receive the final sacraments and then die? Thanks be to God. If we're all so lucky. That, that, that's why it's important. I try to also encourage every patient who's facing major surgery and acute illness to get anointed. I've had my rotator cuffs operated on. I was anointed before both of those surgeries because a lot of people still have the misconception that it's last rites, um, which it isn't. It's a sacrament that you can receive even if you're not dying. That is beautiful. Tony, we've been going through something that maybe some of our listeners have heard of. It's called the COVID pandemic. How has that affected your practice and the practice of other general surgeons in your hospital? Well, my partners who do elective surgery and the spine surgeries that I help uh, my spine colleagues with, the volume definitely through April, May, and June has dropped. It's starting to pick back up now, but they really scaled down on the number of elective surgeries we could do because we were fearful that what happened in Italy was going to happen here. And of course, I'm in upstate New York. We're looking down, you know, southeast of New York City and seeing what's happening there. So we shut down. We, we usually have uh, 18 ORs. We went down to six. And essentially for probably about a month, it was emergencies only. But even as an acute care surgeon, I was surprised at how much fewer emergency surgeries I was doing. I was wondering, well, the person's appendix doesn't know there's a COVID pandemic. Right. Yeah. But surprisingly, we just didn't see the volume of admission. So I, I think people may have just been staying at home with these illnesses. And yes. But even then, I thought, well, there's going to be a lag. Then a bunch of people will come in with advanced cases. And even that didn't materialize. So it's kind of a mystery to me, you know, but I do know that sometimes a diverticulitis, a gallbladder attack, or a bowel obstruction doesn't really require much intensive therapy other than the patient just not eating or drinking for a little bit, and it can ease up. So maybe people who ordinarily would go to the hospital didn't because they were afraid of getting being exposed to COVID. Do you, do you see things getting back to the pre-COVID time anytime soon? Or I've heard estimates that it might take you know, a couple of years to, to take care of the backlog of elective cases and, you know, cancer procedures. I'm thinking even screening colonoscopies and things of that nature, you know. I, I think you're right. I agree. I just think society as a whole, I don't think we're ever going to be the same. Just the way everybody is 
reacted to this. I've never seen anything quite like it, nor I'm sure if you guys or any of us in our lifetime. And it really is amazing. Um, I, I think we got to have a healthy balance, though. I mean, it's really not normal to live like we're living now. One thing I, I said that's got to be really bad is, you know, you get some of these elderly patients in the hospital and already they're out of their elements. So they they'll get some acute delirium or confusion. Now, how do you think they feel that every pa- person who's coming in to talk to them is wearing a mask? Oh. I mean, it's, it's, and they're not seeing their family. Um, I mean, it's just got to, it's just awful. I mean, you see these pictures of nursing home uh, residents talking to their family through 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 um, the glass. They're out. Yes. The, their family's out in the parking lot, the yard, and they're inside. I mean, I, I don't know if it'll ever truly change back. Tony, what do you think are some of the greatest misconceptions people have about general surgeons or general surgery? I think the probably the biggest one is all we want to do is cut, uh, which is not true. We, I mean, most general surgeons who practice in an ethical manner will operate if it's appropriate and they can truly help a patient. So a lot of times we're often the ones saying, no, we don't think surgery is the right thing. And, you know, I never say this, but really surgery is how a general surgeon gets paid. Right. So us telling you we don't recommend an operation really should, should kind of hit home because that's we're saying, no, um, even though that's what we do, that's probably not the best thing for you. Um, I'd say that's probably the big one. And the second is there are no simple surgeries. I, I can't stand it when people say, oh, it's just a gallbladder. <laughs> okay, it's not just a gallbladder. Just like it's just not a simple skin cancer, you know? Oh, yes. I, I hear that one all the time. Oh, it's just a little one. It's just a, a stitch or two, right? <laughs> <laughs> So that's that's one thing. There are really no simple surgeries, and you know, a good general surgeon is never going to take anything we do lightly. Do you remember that show, Dangerous Jobs? I think it was on oh, Dirty a, Jobs. Or, no, there was one on a about dangerous jobs. No, I haven't seen that one. Actually, Dirty Jobs does apply to a general surgeon as well. <laughs> yes, some it of these does. Oh yes, uh, they stink. <laughs> we do a very dangerous job when you think of it. I mean, things can go south in an operation pretty quickly if you get into some heavy bleeding, even with a gallbladder. Yes, there are some large blood vessels in the abdomen. So you spend, what percentage of your time when you're operating are you in the abdomen? Well, today I did two surgeries. I think the gallbladder I was in for about 45 minutes laparoscopically in an open surgery uh, involving a perforated appendix with abscesses. And I was probably in there for about an hour, hour and a half. But But how much of the time are you not operating in the abdomen? Are you operating on a different part of the body? I'd say soft tissue infections is probably the greatest uh, percentage of that. But most common problems are involved from your kind of like your sternum down to your pubic bone. Okay. Um, so you don't do thyroids? No, I have two part General surgeons do, though, and actually two of my partners specialize in thyroid surgery. They do all the thyroids and parathyroids, and a lot of my other partners still also do them, and they do them quite well. I used to do them, but you know that's a that's a very stressful operation when you're looking around for that uh, recurrent laryngeal nerve. <laughs> <laughs> if if someone, if I'm thinking of pre medical and medical students, we talked about a lot of the good things about being a surgeon. If someone's trying to discriminate, what would you say the biggest downside is? Is it just time or lack of sleep? I'd say those are two of the biggest ones. Also, I think some of the, re- I mean, you, you hate talking about money, but the reality is you do have to make a living. Some of the reimbursements for our procedures aren't as lucrative as say other specialties, you know, like orthopedics or cardiac surgery or different things like that, even though we do do very difficult, challenging things. So you can put a lot of time and effort in with not much reward. And probably the thing that hurts the most are the lawsuits because we've all been sued. Um, Because when you read that complaint, I know it's a legal document, but I don't know if you guys ever had the misfortune of having being invited to one of those, but you you read that complaint against you and it's just really, it, it, it really hurts. 
I don't think patient, we may even do a show on that. I don't think that lawyers or patients have any idea how tremendously it disrupts your life for years. When you've tried to give all of yourself to this and we're supposed to be perfect, it almost seems like. Well, yeah, just like the Bible, that's where we're supposed to be. Be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. But he doesn't say if you're not perfect, you'll get sued, does it? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh. What have been the biggest advances you've seen in your lifetime in general surgery? I'd say we are doing less invasive procedures. And you can go back to, I used, before I ventured off into acute care surgery, my group, I did take care of a lot of breast cancer. And if you remember the original breast cancer operations, the Halstead mastectomy. Oh, gosh. It was mutilating. Yes. And now the whole chest wall muscle, so all the patient was left with was a rib cage and skin and a little layer of fat. So we've come a long way in that regard, uh, reconstructive surgery for breast cancer. But also as far as um, the, the scope of what we do, the general surgeons in the 70s, the most common operations they did were for peptic ulcer disease. Wow. So then the um, proton pump, well, not the first it was the H2 blockers, then the proton pump inhibitors, they pretty much have taken that away from us. And then my gastro gastrointestinal colleagues, the GI docs, they decide to do ERCP. So now it's rare for a general surgeon to say, do what's called a common bile duct exploration for a gallstone, you know, that's in the main bile duct that you can't get to laparoscopically. And now we're doing just about everything is being done or has a minimally invasive uh, side to it. Hernias, um, colon surgery, cancer surgery, and, you know, we're even advancing in that with robotics, which is just another way to do laparoscopic surgery. It's another tool. Yeah, is, I've got a question about that. Is the robot just a big gimmick? Does it sound cool like the bionic man, or is it useful to you as opposed to tr traditional laparoscopy? I myself have not formally trained on the robot, but I've watched enough of it with my partners because I have so many partners who do it. It just didn't make sense for me to get trained on it. But it's really the instrumentation. When you do straight laparoscopic surgery, you really only have two degrees of motion, like opening and closing a scissors. But the instrumentation with the robot, it's like a wrist. So ah. you have much greater degrees of motion. So it's the surgeon's controlling it, and it's ergonomically much better for the surgeon in some ways it could prolong a surgeon's career because they're not, you know, their back isn't bothering them. They're, you know, their joints or anything, but just for you, Tom, I I'm hoping someday we can bring the PIM particle to general surgery. <laughs> yes. Ant-Man. I love, I knew yes. you had to get it in there before the end. Uh, and think of the GI bleeders I could get. I could shrink down, go right that down would the be GI. Awesome. <laughs> okay, the you could design your own suit. Yeah, and you could get a pick and a shovel and take care of those mold surgeries a lot easier if you get, <laughs> <laughs> get right down there with the shovel. Tony, what last, what last little tidbits would you like to leave with our listeners about general surgery? Well, first of all, I would say if you're having surgery, please pray for your surgeon. Please pray that. God guides our hands, our mind, and our hearts in taking care of you. Let the surgeon know you're a Catholic. And whenever you're a priest, whenever you're called to anoint someone, go do it. Tony Oliva, General Surgeon, Syracuse, New York. Thank you so much for being with us on Dr. Doctor. And we're back with Dr. Doctor and the answer to the medical history trivia question. So what do the two colors on a barber's pole represent? And it does go back to the Middle Ages. So Andrew, did you even know what the colors were on a barber pole? You know, I, I have an envisionment of a twisting candy cane. So I was going with red and white. And that's exactly right. And it does look, and oftentimes the barber pole is spinning. And in some places, a third color has been added, uh, blue, red, white, and blue, mainly in America, but sometimes even in the UK. But anyway, classically red and white, Red was for one of the things that a barber surgeon would do, bloodletting. So the oh, red wow. not only referred to blood itself, but the fact that they released the blood. And in some old barber poles, there was actually um, a basin at the top and a basin at the bottom of the pole to represent the bloodletting. And then the white represented what they used to mop up the blood, the bandages. Wow. Now, 
So some other people have said that the blue was not only patriotic, but that the blue represented blood from veins, which through the skin looks blue, deoxygenated blood or less oxygenated, and red, the, the arterial. Uh, it, it's also interesting that from this time in Great Britain, surgeons at the time, barber surgeons, were called Mr., not doctor. And in the UK, at least until recently, and maybe even still now, surgeons are referred to as Mr., not doctor. I found that fascinating. Weird. Yeah. In, in America, you know, it's kind of, they go together, physician and surgeon. You know, a lot of times they'll put them yes. together on your diploma even. Yes. Uh, yes, they will. But can you imagine somebody who not only did bloodletting, they did cupping therapy. That's another episode. Pulling teeth amputations, and then in between they bathed, cut hair, shaved, and trimmed facial hair, and even gave enemas. I, I don't know. It sounds like an interesting How, how come thing. there's no color on the pole for the enemas, Tom? <laughs> what color would... I don't want to go there, Andrew. <laughs> I don't think I'd let those guys give me a close shave if they're into the bloodletting. I don't know, but that's just, just me. And what are they using their uh, instruments for uh, that they're using on me? <laughs> I, I don't want to know that, but uh, I don't think I would have been a surgeon 500 years ago, but I'm glad I am now. I'm glad we have people like Tony Oliva doing what they do. I was thoroughly impressed by how his Catholic faith infuses everything he does. It's it's hard to put your finger on that in talking to patients, but Tony put it so well. And man, it's just nice to have a friend and a brother in Christ in your time of crisis. Amen. Thank you, listeners, for being with us and Tony Oliva today on our episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association brought to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review us. Our show would benefit from the reviews. This is Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word DOCTOR to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor.